All right, let's turn to Ephesians chapter 4 together, and we will read where we left off from last week, except before that, I thought maybe i just remind us of where we are again. Um, and I want to sort of paint a little picture of where this letter came from. This letter was written by Paul, of course, to the Ephesians, and it was written in his last imprisonment. So his last imprisonment was the one where he went to Jerusalem. You remember he was attacked in the temple because the Jews there thought that he had brought in actually an Ephesian Gentile into the temple. And that imprisonment lasted until his death, even though it didn't remain. He moved in different places. He didn't stay in one place. He was taken from Jerusalem to Caesarea, from Caesarea to Rome, but there was a shipwreck along the way. But he finally did make it to Rome and... He stayed there until his death. So it was in that time of imprisonment that this letter was written. And um, it's a precious letter because of the relationship that Paul had with the Ephesians. In the book of Colossians, for example, Paul says that he's never seen them face to face. Uh, In chapter 2, at the beginning of chapter 2, he says, I write this to you and to the Laodiceans, those who I've never seen in the flesh before. But in Ephesians, he had spent lots of time with them. He had spent over two years or about two years with them, building relationships together, planning the church, preaching the gospel, establishing them in grace. And so he had such a relationship with them that when he was on his way to Jerusalem for that last time, he bypassed Ephesus because he knew he wouldn't make it to Jerusalem in time for the feast because of the relationships he had there. And now I just want to... Let us think about this for a moment. If this was written during that time of the imprisonment, I believe this was the first word that the Ephesians received from Paul during that time. I think there's that character in the book itself. You remember when he says, look, I don't want you to faint for my imprisonment, right? They'd all, they had heard that he was... Uh, captive. They had heard that he was taken captive in Jerusalem. They loved Paul. Remember, they wept on his neck. They knew he was going to Jerusalem to be bound because the prophet had prophesied that was going to happen. And he said, I'm ready to go to my death. So they knew he was going to go to Jerusalem to be bound. They knew there was a possibility that he was going to die and they wept for him. And so now he went and then they hear reports that he was arrested and he was almost torn to pieces. And they're trying to understand, okay, where is he now? And there's messengers coming and all this. You can imagine the grief that they have or the worry that they have for Paul, their beloved brother and friend. And I think this is the first word that they hear from Paul, by directly from Paul. Maybe indirectly they might have heard some things, but directly the first writing. And I think that the, the letter itself carries that. But imagine, because imagine in the end of the letter it says, this is by the hand of Tychicus. Tychicus will tell you all of my affairs. So obviously... He's come to tell them what's, got, what's happened to Paul, where he is, what's going on. Did you imagine the Ephesians, you know, praying for Paul, carrying on, remembering his face, worried about him? And then all of a sudden, a man named Tychicus shows up in Ephesus, a believer, and he finds the Christians. They go, we, th- he's a companion of Paul. He's a companion of Paul. Tychicus is here, and the word spreads. Tychicus is here. Tychicus is here. This companion of Paul has arrived with news. Not only with news, a letter. He's got a letter in his hand. It's for us, from Paul. 
and they open it, and they're worried about him, and they open it, and he's in, they know he's in prison. And the first thing, after, of course, the greeting, which is like our, you know, to and from on our envelopes, what's the first thing Paul says? Blessed be God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who's blessed us with every spiritual blessing in Christ in the heavenly places. Written from prison, Paul explodes with praise to God and explodes in just praise, looking into the heavenlies and, and wants the Ephesians to look up also into the heavenlies too. That must have been an amazing moment when they got this letter, when they first read it for the first time. Blessed be God the Father. And Paul essentially says to these friends of his, he says, look, friends, don't worry about me. All of my imprisonment is for my good, for your good. It's what I'm called to. It's all about grace. Let's look up and not look at just these chains, because I'm rejoicing in these chains. You can rejoice with me. Let's look up and see what we have in Christ together and just rejoice in him. And he reminds them, and he prays for them. He lets them know, I've been praying for you since I've been in, in, in captivity. I've been praying for you that you would see this that you would see all the things that you have in Christ and that you would know the love of Christ that passes knowledge. And so then we come to chapter 4, and Paul then, after talking a lot about the heavenly vision that we have, he now says, okay, in light of all this that we've seen, let's walk worthy or walk suitably according to all that we have in Jesus with lowliness and meekness and long-suffering and forbearing one another in love and keeping the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. He now brings us to unity. And we're going to talk more about unity today as we continue. And Paul, in our reading today, is going to talk about unity and diversity and how there's unity and diversity and there's diversity and unity and how that works together. So we'll pick back up at verse 7. And we'll read to verse 13. So he continues to write, but unto every one of us is given grace according to the measure of the gift of Christ. Wherefore, he says, when he ascended up on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts unto men. Now that he ascended, what is it but that he also descended first into the lower parts of the earth? He that descended is the same also that ascended up far above the all heavens that he might fill all things. And he gave some apostles and some prophets and some evangelists and some pastors and teachers for the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ, till we all come in the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God unto a perfect man, unto the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Lord, I pray that you would help us to just enter in this morning to what Paul has been saying, what he is saying here. I pray, Lord, that you would help us and open our understanding and our minds and our hearts to receive your word and to be changed by it and to obey it. And I pray that you would be glorified in Jesus' name. Amen. In um, 1972, did a little reading the other day. There was a novel that was written called The Stepford Wives in 1972 by a lady named Ira Levine. And uh, The Stepford Wives, it's kind of famous in our culture. It's used in our culture. The basic gist of it, I've not read the novel, but I know a little bit about it from just my 
small study on it. The basic gist of the novel was that this lady moves to this little Connecticut neighborhood, and as she's there, she kind of notices that there's something strange about the wives and the women in her neighborhood, that they're all very much alike and similar and odd. And she finds out that they're actually not women but robots. <laughs> and they're all programmed to do kind of the same things. And uh, as the story goes on, as she makes this discovery, they try to kill her so that she can't get the secret out. Step for wives. And often, when we talk about unity, kind of the image of the step for wives comes up. Like, well, if we're going to have unity, then that means everyone has to sort of look the same and act the same and be the same. And if someone tries to break that, then we're going to kill that person. And it's just like, it, it, this is sometimes the idea that people have when they think of unity. Because people think that you can't have unity unless you have some kind of uniformity. So in, there is no true unity unless we're the same in some way. And if we're, we have to be the same, then I don't want unity. And people run from that sort of an idea. A lot of people think of this when they think of unity, and they run from it. They might acknowledge the superficial unity and say, oh, yeah, we, unity is a good thing. You know, we, we're all the, we'll acknowledge that we're one together and maybe or this or that and the other. But we don't want any real unity. Because real unity, according to the Bible, is when people dwell together in unity. It's not just a superficial acknowledgement. It's not just, oh, yeah, I'm one with, uh, you know, the saints over in that other church. We're one course, but let them stay over there, and we will stay over here. But we are one. I'll acknowledge our unity we have in Christ. You know? But they don't want the unity the Bible talks about, which is an actual dwelling together, because they think that to dwell together in unity, we have to be uniform. It's not going to work unless we're the same. And so the step for wives image just comes up. We don't want that kind of unity. We'll have the superficial unity. We don't want that kind of unity, because it has to be uniform. But when the Bible talks about unity, it talks about it in such a positive way, this dwelling together, and it's important to God. God says, endeavor to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. It's not something to run from, but something to embrace. And Paul here, immediately after telling us about endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace, and immediately after saying what we have unity in, he gives seven ones, if you remember. Then he says, but. Right? The first word in verse 7. But. So he says, endeavor to keep the unity of the spirit of peace. Here's what we have unity in. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one hope, one, 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 one God, Father over all. But unity doesn't mean uniformity. There's diversity in unity. This is what Paul is saying. He's saying unity and diversity aren't two antithetical, irreconcilable things that are set against each other. You either have diversity or you have unity because the two don't work together. But the biblical vision is diversity and unity as one. And it's actually diversity that tests the reality of our unity. Diversity tests whether we have unity or not. Right? Annika just said that when the World Cup happens, people stop killing each other. When the World Cup stops, they start killing each other again. Is that unity? 
So they unite because everyone loves soccer. There's a uniformity there. We all love soccer. Let's just put down the weapons and put on the, the shirts and the flags and just rah, rah. But when the soccer's gone, there's no more uniformity. Let's kill each other. There's no unity there, is there? If, if our unity only consists in our similarity with one another, there's no real unity, is there? But diversity tests it. It's only when you come in contact with somebody or people that are different than you where there is a difference in things that we'll see how much unity and how united you guys really are, right? So actually, true unity requires diversity. Think of a pencil. Here's a simple example. A pencil is made up of four things. I'm not a scientist or I'm not a manufacturer, but my simple mindset. Four things. You got wood, lead, you got some kind of metal, and you got some kind of rubber eraser on it, right? Four simple things. Totally diverse, not the same. If, if you just wanted everything to be the same, you wouldn't even have a pencil. There'd be no such thing as a pencil if everything was just wood or if everything was just lead or everything was just metal, right? You have four totally unrelated things, very different. But when some man comes along with a purpose and he says, you know, I'm, I got this idea of a pencil. I'm going to take this, I'm going to take that, I'm going to put them all together, and I'm going to create this thing called a pencil. And the pencil has a unity within itself, but it's made up of four totally diverse things, right? Now, Paul tells us there's things that we're united in, and there's things that we are not the same in. There's things that we're the same in, and there's things that we're not the same in. The things that we are the same in is listed in verse 4 to 6. One body. So with a pencil, what do the four things have in common? They're made up, they make up one pencil, not three different pencils, right? The four different elements of the pencil are completely different, but they're united in their purpose. They all have a one purpose. The purpose of the wood, the purpose of the lead, the purpose of the metal and the rubber are all to write on paper or to erase. It's just exactly what... The, uh, the same purpose is to be a pencil. Maybe it's owned by the same person. One person owns this pencil and uses it. So the wood and the lead can stand together in unity. We're both owned by the same guy. Or maybe we were both made in the same building. And this is sort of the feel of four to, four to six. Is like, as Christians, we may be different. We've got all these things in common. We're part of one body. We've got one master and Lord. We've got one purpose together, one hope together. One God who is above us, works through us and is in us. But we are not all the same, and our unity doesn't consist in us all being the same. Paul couldn't have chose a more complex thing than a human body to describe the church, and it's the same today. You could not choose today, in the modern 21st century, something more complicated and complex and diverse than the human body, even today, right? That hasn't changed, even though we've made very complicated things like computers. The body still remains the most complicated thing of all. There is so much diversity in your body. Your body is made up of many members, right? All diverse from one another. And yet they together make up one body and have one purpose. And this image of the body, this idea of the body, comes up all throughout Scripture, all throughout the New Testament. One body and many members. And when the Bible talks about one body and many members, it's referring to the different functions and giftings 
that each one of us have within the body. So it's not saying that one body, many members means human beings and orangutans are in the body. We're all human beings, but as human beings, we have different functions and gifts in the body of Christ. So you have different lists in Scripture. You have a list in Romans chapter 12, which says the exact same thing as Ephesians 4, or in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, or in Peter, 1 Peter chapter 4, talks about one body with many different giftings within it. So Paul says in verse 7, when he says, unto every one of us is given grace according to the measure of the gift of Christ, he's not talking about the grace of salvation. What he's talking about here is the grace of spiritual gifts. So what we learn from this is that grace is manifold. Grace isn't just related to one thing. Grace isn't just that God saves you, but he also equips you, and he also works through you, and he also glorifies himself by his grace in us. So grace has all these different levels and all these different uses of God in his people. And it's not a new idea. As we see in looking chapter 3, verse 2, Paul talks about this, another level of grace. He says, If you have heard of the dispensation of the grace of God which is given to me, to you word. So he talked about his particular ministry as an apostle isn't your ministry, and it's not Peter's ministry, and it's not Barnabas's ministry. It's Paul's ministry, and the ministry that was given to Paul was given to him by grace. And Paul doesn't have to have the same ministry as Barnabas and vice versa to have unity but he acknowledges it as grace, unmerited favor, something he didn't earn. It wasn't a ministry that he volunteered for, was it? He didn't say, I'll go. The Spirit said, set apart for me, Paul. And so here it is. Grace means spiritual giftings. God has created us in Christ to do good works. Now here's another thing to notice is it says, that God has given grace to everyone. This is really important. Everyone has been given grace according to the measure of the gift of Christ. Do you believe that God has specifically set you in the body of Christ to do a specific role and a specific function in the body? Do you believe that God has a specific ministry for you as a Christian in the church, in God's temple, in God's family, in God's body? Do you believe that about yourself? Because so often when we think about serving or giftings or ministry, we think that is for only a select few, right? That God has gifted some to do that kind of thing, but not everybody. As a matter of fact, in the Roman Catholic Church, they have their statements and their doctrines and their catechisms and all that that the clergy are the ones that do the work, and it actually says that the laity, laity just means the common people in the church, they are like docile sheep. They do nothing, nothing. Is this the image of the scripture? Is this the image of the body of Christ? Every one of you has been given grace according to the measure of the gift of Christ. So here's the point. There are no vestigial Christians. You talk about vestigial organs, right? There's no such thing. Nor is there any vestigial Christians. That means there's no part of the body that has no purpose. Useless. There's no useless parts of the body of Christ. 
You believe that? Every part has been placed. In 1 Corinthians 12, Paul says this, God has set the members, every one of them, in the body as it has pleased him. Every one has been placed into the body. One of the hindrances to serving the Lord is just not believing that you have a part to play in the body of Christ. It's like, well, I'm not really needed. I don't have any gifts. Those are lies from the devil that keep a person from serving and functioning in the body. And when a person thinks like that, then the whole body suffers. What happens if the pinky finger just said, I don't want to work anymore? Or I don't need, no one needs me. They've got enough fingers as it is. <clears throat> I just want you to see this this morning. If I could just emphasize this, if you could just take this away, that every single person has been given grace, the grace to serve, created in Christ to do good works. Now, what is the measure of the gift of Christ? We'll look at this for a moment. Because if God has distributed these gifts, or he's given gifts by grace, he's done it according to this measure of the gift of Christ. Well, in the next verse, verse 8, Paul talks about this gift of Christ. Here's what he says. He quotes the Old Testament here. Wherefore he saith, when he ascended up on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts unto men. So he's quoting from Psalm 68. So just turn there for a moment with me. Psalm 68 Verse 18. Keep your finger, if you would, in Ephesians. Paul takes us to Psalm 68. Yeah, your pinky. Keep your pinky finger there. That's right. This whole psalm is about the triumph of God over his enemies. The whole song is a victory march and it's all about how God has ruled, conquered, taken captive his enemies. It starts like this. Let God arise, let his enemies be scattered. Let them also that hate him flee before him. As smoke is driven away, so drive them away. As wax melts before the fire, so let the wicked perish at the presence of God. But let the righteous be glad. Let them rejoice before God. Yea, let them exceedingly rejoice Sing unto God, sing praises to his name. Extol him that rides upon the heavens by his name, Yah, and rejoice before him. It ends like this, verse 32. Sing unto God, ye kingdoms of the earth. O sing praises unto the Lord. To him that rides upon the heavens of heavens, which were of old, lo, he does send out his voice, and that a mighty voice. Ascribe ye strength unto God. His excellency is over Israel, and his strength is in the clouds. O oh God, you are terrible out of your holy places. The God of Israel is he that gives strength and power unto his people. Blessed be God. The whole psalm is about God. Couldn't say God more. And it's all about God's march and triumph over his enemies. And in the smack dab middle of this psalm, in verse 18, you have the apostle attributing this verse to Jesus Christ. Verse 18, you have ascended on high. Who? God. 
You have led captivity captive. You have received gifts for men, yea, for the rebellious also, that the Lord God might dwell among them. Isn't that interesting that Paul, in this psalm about God and God's victory, is pointing to Jesus. He's saying this is Jesus that this psalm is talking about. If you flip back, but keeping your finger in the psalm, your pinky finger in the psalm, you'll see that Paul goes just on a slight detour, and he points out that this is talking about the Lord Jesus Christ. He says, Now he that ascended, what is it but that he also descended first into the lower parts of the earth? So the real simple logic. If God ascended, then God must have first descended because God is already in heaven. God is already on high. So how is it that God ascends on high if he's already on high and he's on the highest of high, the highest of heavens? He rides up there. If he ascended, it must first mean that he descended. And in this, Paul is seeing a proof of the incarnation of Christ, of the coming of God in the flesh to man. It's not just a descent, but a descent to deliver his people, if you look in the context of the psalm, that God has actually come out of heaven, as many times the Jews would pray, Lord, rend the heavens and come down and help us. And he does. He came down, he saved the people, and he ascended again in victory over his enemies. So Paul sees this as a proof of the divinity of Christ and the incarnation of God into the earth. How far did God descend? He says here, into the lower parts of the earth. Not just to the earth, but what he's implying here is not that just that God came in flesh to the earth, but also died. This is the point of what it means when he says the lower parts of the earth. Some people say, well, that means he went to hell. I don't think you can press it that far. I think he's just saying that he went to death. And he therefore sees in this ascension a resurrection also. So that God descended and ascended is not only incarnation, but resurrection. And it's a reminiscing of what we already looked at in Ephesians 1, 19 to 22, where it talks about how God raised Jesus Christ from the dead, right? And then exalted him far above all principality and power and caused him to be the head of the church that he might fill all things. So Paul just alludes to it because he's already discussed that already. He that descended is the same also that ascended up far above all heavens that he might fill all things. You know, Jesus even talked about this in John 3 to Nicodemus. He said that who is he that no one has ascended except the Son of Man who's descended, right? Same logic, same thought. Nobody's ascended into heaven, but he that came down out of heaven, even the Son of Man, which is in heaven. Now, the Jewish commentators since Jesus have realized this is an argument for Christianity. They've read this. They've seen this. They say, okay, what's up with this? And they have then tried to say that Psalm 68, verse 18, is referring to Moses ascending to receive the law on Mount Sinai. You've got to do something with this verse because it's all about God. But that's the great problem of that interpretation is that the whole psalm is about God. And Moses is not mentioned in this psalm at all. So for them, 
for, for the psalmist to say in verse 18, you have ascended on high to Moses, is not natural. Where was Moses even mentioned? But it's all about God. Also, the psalm refers to a conqueror having victory over his enemies and descending in, in ascending in triumph. That's not Moses. Moses didn't do that. If anyone's the conqueror in the story of Moses, it's God. And God would, or Moses would have acknowledged that as well. The Apostle Paul says this is speaking about Jesus. And it's the most natural. It's speaking about God, and therefore it's speaking about Jesus. They also say the Jews, well, Paul misquotes this verse. If you notice, there's a discrepancy between these two verses. They're not exactly the same. For one, Paul says, he ascended up on high. He led captivity captive and gave gifts unto men. And the psalm says, you ascended on high. So that's kind of a minor difference there. But another difference is, in Ephesians, Paul says, you gave gifts unto men. And the psalm says, you received gifts. Some even say, from men. But some say, you received gifts for men. There's two things we learn about this, in this. First of all, that when the apostles quote the Old Testament, they don't quote it with the rules that we use today in the 21st century. They don't footnote either, do they? They don't put in brackets, Psalm 68, 18, do they? They paraphrase, as a matter of fact. Paul and the apostles paraphrase the verses that they quote. So what they do is, under the inspiration of the Holy Ghost, without doing any violence to the text at all, they simply restate it and explain to their hearers what that verse is really saying. So it's talking about Christ. So instead of you, he says he, he, Christ, ascended. He's just paraphrasing it and almost giving his commentary on the verse in his quotation. Also, when received is changed to gave, he's not doing any damage there either because the idea in the Hebrew is that God received gifts to give unto man. And so Paul just omits the first step and just says he gave. He's not doing any violence to the text. Do you understand? So he's simply saying, God, Christ gave gifts unto man. Yes, of course he received them, but then he gave. In the first sermon on the day of Pentecost, Peter says that Christ has been exalted to the right hand of God and has received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, which he's now given unto man. Same idea right there. In light of God's, in light of Christ's victory over the demonic forces at the cross, and now not only resurrected, but exalted above all principalities and powers, far above their jurisdiction and rule, Christ now has the authority to bestow salvation and grace and blessings and gifts to men, which otherwise he wouldn't have the right to do because they're sinners. Because he's triumphed over them at the cross with the blood that he shed, annulling the commandments, as it says in Colossians, doing away with the commandments, nailing them to the cross, now as the supreme authority the authority of grace, which is above law, now he distributes, has the right to distribute these gifts unto man. This is the idea of the theme of the verse. He's ascended as a conquering king who has spoiled the enemy and now can distribute these gifts. This is our Jesus that we worship. He's done this for us. He has conquered our enemies, the ones that kept us in bondage, the ones that 
destroy, the destroyer of our soul. He's conquered them. And now he has the final say. And he has gifts to give to us. Not only salvation, but also a place in his body, in his temple. And he distributes his gifts from heaven. Isn't that awesome? This is the gift of Christ. But the measure means this. It's the measure that he wills to give. As king, we don't boss him around. And we don't say, Jesus, I want to be an apostle. Jesus, let me be a preacher. All right, let me give the gift of healing and all these other things. You don't boss him around, but he gives as he wills. Many verses in the Bible explain this, that Christ distributes the gifts of his spirit by the spirit as he wills. 1 Corinthians 12, 11. One in the self sp same spirit works all these things, distributing to each one again. It's another third verse that says to everyone. Individually as he wills. The measure that you've received is a measure that he's dis decided for you. And we might say, well, I think I would do it better than he would. I would probably distribute gifts to this person and gifts to that person and more gifts to me and less to him, <laughs> you know, right? Do we trust that if God is the one from heaven, sovereign and all-wise, he's the one who distributes, can we not trust him and rest in his decision and distribution? As we mature in Christ, we rest in his decision. His initiative, His grace to give. As long as we're fighting against it, what are we really seeing? Who are you really thinking of if you're fighting against His decision? Say, I wish I was a hand. I wish I was a shoulder blade. <laughs> I should have been a shoulder blade. Well, God knows that if you were a shoulder blade, you couldn't handle it. You wouldn't be able to bear that. That's not what you were made for. He didn't make you to do that. So in a spiritual sense, it's like just any sense. What if I said, well, I want, to be, I want to be an accountant for the rest of my life. They make good money. God knows I wouldn't be an, a good accountant. <laughs> yeah, that's right. In the same way, we have to trust a God who created us, set us apart from the womb, created us in the womb, elected us, saved us, and gives us the gifts. He does it with his perfect wisdom, knowing each one of us, knowing every one of us. And as long as we're fighting against his decision, we're not seeing the real picture, are we? Are you fighting against who God made you to be? Are you wanting to be somebody you're not or have the gifts that you don't have? Who are you thinking of when you think like that? Are you thinking of the good of the body? Are you thinking of the glory of God who gave you those gifts? The purpose the gifts are given unto you is that you can edify the body not so that you can be somebody, as we'll see in just a moment. The list Paul gives here in verse 11 is not in any way exhaustive because in a couple other scriptures, there's at least actually, there's at least five lists in the whole New Testament very similar to this one where it lists spiritual gifts. And a couple of them list, list also apostles and prophets, but it goes on and lists many more things as well. Here Paul seems to dwell 
seems to highlight the leadership in the church when he lists these gifts. When it says, he gave some to be apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers. But I want you to see that the focus is not the leaders at all in this passage. Though he highlights the leaders, or he only selects those to list, the focus is on the entire body of Christ functioning. And there's a reason why he lists the leaders, because he's about to tell us why God gave the leaders in just a moment. And you'll see it's not for the leader's sake. So very briefly, I won't dwell on what these are. Apostles are those who are specifically sent or commissioned by God and gifted with the ability to do miracles. That's essentially what an apostle is. One that is specifically sent by God to establish and strengthen churches and has the Holy Spirit power upon him to do miracles. This is what an apostle is. And because he's specifically commissioned and is gifted, he has a measure of weight to what he says. He has the authority. People look to him. There's many apostles in Scripture, besides even the twelve. Prophets are those who receive revelation from God and speak as God's mouthpiece. In one Scripture, the Bible says that those who prophesy, let them speak as though they spoke the oracles of God. They're those who receive words from God and speak as God's mouthpiece. Always have to be tested, of course, by Scripture because there's always the reality of false prophets. Evangelists are like our missionaries. Are their soul winners. They're those who go and preach the gospel and bring people to Christ. That's what their focus is. And a pastor-teacher, which is one in the Greek, if you look at the Greek here, they don't put those as two different things, but as one thing in the original. A pastor and a teacher is one who, who exercises oversight over a flock, a local flock, and feeds the flock also. He guides and he feeds and he cares for a local flock or a local body of believers, local group. A shepherd, you could say. You could put those together. Some people think these have ceased, right? Some Christians think they've ceased. Some Christians think they've not ceased. I'm not going to go into it this morning, but I will say that I think it's strange that some of these have ceased and not others. I don't think that anyone would say the pastors and teachers have ceased or even evangelists. They might say apostles and prophets have ceased, but I think it's strange why the list would be broken up. And also, it tells us in verse 13 that these things are given until we come unto the unity of the faith, unto the perfect man. So there is even a cutoff time, which I don't believe has occurred. But the focus of this is not the leader's and verse 12 is the key. Why does he point to the leaders here anyway? Because he wants to see that the point of the leadership is to equip every member to serve in the body of Christ. And that's the focus. Every member serving in the body of Christ. And part of verse 12 has been confused because of a simple comma that shouldn't be there. In verse 12, it says, for the perfecting of the saints. So it tells you what the leaders, God has given the apostles and prophets, etc. Why? For, or the Greek word is even stronger. This is the, the view. For the view of perfecting the, the saints. And now there's a comma there. 
And so many people have interpreted this verse to mean the leaders have three jobs. They say, well, the leaders have three jobs. The leaders perfect the saints, number one. The second job the leaders have is the work of the ministry, number two. And the third job they have is to edify the body of Christ, number three. So because of those commas, it seems like these people that he gave have three tasks. But in the Greek, it is not like that at all. In fact, the word for, the second word for, for, for the work of the ministry is unto, is the word ice. It means unto. So he, what he's saying is the leaders are given for the perfecting of the saints unto the work of the ministry. That's what it means. So the leaders perfect, the word in the Greek again is actually not perfect, but equip. It's not the same word for perfection. It's actually the only time the word is used in the New Testament at all. And it means to furnish or equip. It actually carries the feel of furnishing a building or equipping a person unto the work of the ministry. So what are the apostles for? What are prophets for? What are evangelists for? What are pastors and teachers for? They are for equipping every member to work the ministry. The ministry means service, to serve. Think of the ministry these days and we think wearing a clerical collar and having an ordination, right? Are you a minister? Every believer should answer that question on the, in the affirmative. Are you a minister? Yeah, I'm a servant. I serve. I have a servant role in the body of Christ. I'm a minister. And these lines we've drawn between ministers and non-ministers and clergy and laity are unbiblical. You don't find them in the Bible. These leadership roles are there, but they're just a different function in the body, a different kind of service. That's their service. Their service is to equip all the members for their service, for the work of the ministry. And when every member is working in service, the next unto is the body of Christ is edified or built up. The body of Christ is edified and built up. Not when there's one person at the front teaching and doing all the ministry, doing all the service, but when every member is serving the body. We see this down in 16, which we won't go to today. But Every part, every part, he says. The whole body, every joint, every part, making increase of the body in love, serving, every part supplying. Is that, are you following that? Does that make sense? Now, how do you think the church has done with that? Have we, even Protestants, denying the clerical clergy, you know, we still have maybe not used the terms, but we've still boxed ourselves in to this. Well, there's a select few that do all the ministry and everyone else is just docile flock, right? There's two reasons really why that happens. Two attitudes in both the leaders and the non-leaders, and that is this. The leaders like being the ones to do it all. And number two, the non-leaders like the leaders doing it all. <laughs> Right? The leaders take pride in it, and the non-leaders like to just sit back and just let the others do it all, right? It's just easier if, if they just do it. I'll just pay them to do it. Do what we need to do. Brothers and sisters, God is not thinking that way. And this is not how a body functions, is it? The body doesn't get together and say, hey, let's just pay the, uh, the mouth to do all the work. <laughs> 
<laughs> let's just pay the mouth to do all the work. Everything that needs to be done, let the mouth do it. It doesn't work, does it? That's not the image of a body. Churches doesn't, don't function as a body when they're thinking like that. A body. A functioning body with every member, non, no vestigial parts. This is what the church is supposed to be. And it's by this way of functioning that we come, verse 13, unto the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. As long as we are operating in that old way, and not as a body, we will not come unto the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. We need to learn unity. Unity is unity and diversity of servants in roles and gifts. We need to learn this if we're going to come. You know, the, the Greek words here, edify, see that in verse 12? The word edify comes up throughout the New Testament. That word is the word oikodome. And what it means is to build a house. So this vision of a building is still very much in view. Edifying means building a house. What are we doing at Oasis? Edifying. <laughs> We're constructing, building up. Because we have to think of, you know, building up somebody, like almost lifting them up, right? Building them up. But the idea is actually building up a house, framing and sheetrocking and insulating, putting on the ceiling, painting, getting it up so it can function. And if you remember, when we talked about the temple in chapter 2, it was a process. It was not finished, was it? Look at chapter 2, verse 21. And notice, the, notice the, the feel of every part working. In verse 21, it says, In whom all the building, or every part of the building, fitly framed together, presently grows unto a holy temple in the Lord. God is building the temple still in view here, the church being the temple, the purpose and essence of the church. It's being built up, but it won't be built up unless every part is building and every part is serving. Every part is placed in the body and functioning as it's supposed to be. And 13 is just the end product. It doesn't mean we arrive at unity, because we've already discussed how we have unity already. But what it does say is until we come unto the unity of the faith, unto the unity that we already have, until we begin walking suitably, walking in that unity that we already have in Christ. If we have unity, do we walk in it, though? Do you think that you walk in unity with the bond of peace with every believer? Because you have unity between every believer. Do you experience that unity in your life? That's maturity. Verse 13, a perfect man or a mature man. So the temple of God is the church that knows God through Jesus, the knowledge of the Son of God, they understand God's love for them. They live out of that love. They're unified in the bond of peace. Not only do they have peace with God, 
but they also have peace with one another. And sin doesn't separate them. This is maturity that we need to grow in. And in just closing, I'll say this, that in Psalm 68, verse 18, if you noticed, it says that Christ ascended up on high. So he's the conquering king. He's died on the cross, rose from the dead, triumphed over his enemies, took captivity captive, which means the captivity that we were taking cap that we were captive by, he took it captive. Ascended up into was exalted at the right hands of God. From there distributes these gifts to his church. Says, You're saved, and now here are these gifts to the body of Christ. Every member set in place to function as a temple. Why? At the end of that verse, it says, and we read it, that the Lord may dwell among them. Remember that? It said it right at the end of verse 18. Why has God given all these gifts to men? That the Lord may dwell among them. The end of all things, I don't know how this is all going to work in the end, but the end of all things is when God tabernacles with his church, when we're once and all finally together. And that will be a time and a place of unity and peace between man and God. So it's an exciting thing that we're a part of as a church, isn't it? It's not just, uh, I don't know, a little gathering of people here in this building. It's bigger than that. When you think of church, do you just think of, you know, a fellowship of believers who get together and sing, and, you know, it's good, that's good. But the church is so much more exciting and bigger than that, what God is doing and what God is building. So we have unity. There's things that we're all the same in. We have things that we're not all the same in and have diversity. Don't let that diversity break our unity. And don't let that unity throw away all our diversity. So what is your gift to contribute? What is your gift, Kim? <laughs> what is your gift? I just want to encourage you. Just what is your gift that God has given you so that you can edify the body of Christ? Lord, thank you for this building that you're constructing and that you've made us a part of it. Forgive us, Lord, for not seeing the church as a body. Thank you for your patience with us. I pray that you'd teach us here in Cache Valley how to function as a body, every member edifying every member. Teach us what our gifts are, Lord, and help us not to envy one another, but to stand together in unity. trust in your ability to do above that which we can ask or think. In Jesus' name, amen.